Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Remember when you were a kid and you were told that the best way to remove a bandage was to just rip it off? Just do it fast, grit your teeth, yank it off of there. Well, despite what every kid thinks, that's probably the best way to go. I mean, it's a slight bit of intense pain, but then it's over. Yeah, that's that's not what we've been doing. No, we've got a, a bandage firmly affixed, like it's been there for many days, maybe weeks, deeply embedded in all the hair around the wound. The blood has dried to that little pad, and it's scabbed over. I mean, really, the bandage is more part of you now, as opposed to being a temporary measure. And over the last handful of weeks, we've been slowly, very slowly, pulling this bandage up, each hair quivering as it hangs on until, tink, it yanks out of the follicle, causing a tear to well up in the corner of your eye, and then onto the next hair, pull, slowly, carefully, quiveringly, tink, another tear. Can you feel it? Yeah, that's what we've been metaphorically doing as we plod our way through this Andy Stanley debacle. <laughs> well, no more. Today we're going to get that bandage off of there, pulling just slightly faster, just a bit, to get that last bit unstuck so we can forever cast it into the garbage and eventually the landfill where it can be buried beneath tons of earth and refuse never to be seen again. Or maybe it'll end up in the pool. Who's to say? Anyway, so as to not drag this out any longer, on today's episode, we'll have a single-segment episode encompassing the final message in the sermon-esque series and my closing thoughts with whatever mush is left of my brain. And despite my best efforts, I am pleased and somewhat ashamed to announce the return of the goal updates. The weeping... No gnashing of teeth, hard to gnash with that much food stuffed between the teeth, will begin again after the closing bumper. So grab a bucket to catch whatever brain matter escapes out of your ear, take a new bandage out of the box and out of the wrapper, but so help me, do not take those little plastic thingies off the sticky part until you apply it to the wound so as to not contaminate it with germs, even though nobody really knows how to do that. And crack open that bottle of Mercuric... Mercuric... Bactine. This wound is likely to pop right back open as we yank this thing off of there. And without further ado, and with a slight bit of a don't, here we go. Ooh, okay, we've made it. We have finally made it. Well, we've almost made it. Uh, this is part six of A Fundamental Disaster, our review of the Andy Stanley recent sermon, for lack of a better term, series, entitled The Fundamental List. I'll be honest, Andy Stanley sermons, they're just exhausting and frustrating and angering, and they're flat-out heretical and blasphemous. I mean, Andy is a man with an agenda, and he's picking up speed now that Daddy has died. 
Now, you can go back and listen to the kind of intro to this series in the segment Lying Liars Who Lie, and then obviously parts one through five of A Fundamental Disaster. I give all the background that you'll need to understand why I'm reviewing this and what the problems are. For the sake of time, I won't restate the text that I've been using in Jude and Matthew. Just suffice to say that Andy is at best a wolf, more likely a snake. He's dangerous. He's very dangerous. Now, I'll give a brief review of points one through seven with a very brief comment as to how Andy twisted the point that on the surface sounds generally okay. Just know there's a lot more that I cover in the first parts of this series, and if you haven't listened to them, do that. Uh, I know it's a lot of listening. I know it's a lot of time commitment, but, but trust me, Andy is very subtle. He's very personable. He's seemingly harmless, but he is very agenda-driven. He's an excellent liar, and he's very good at what he does. You want to know how to spot what he's doing, and then you want to apply what you learn in your everyday life so you can avoid other wolves like him. So, the first seven points. Number one, Jesus is God's Son and our King. Now, Andy tears apart the church fathers in this one. He tears apart theology proper and belief structures. He uses the concept of a God box that we all apparently have, carrying around our beliefs, the things that we believe are true, and my box is right, which means yours is wrong. He places the idea in your head in this one that traditional dogma and theology and doctrine, well, that may be toxic and dangerous, especially if you don't feel like it is correct, right? Because feelings. Point number two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. Now, this is how Andy says that since Jesus shows us God, we can eliminate the rest of the Bible that shows the God that we think is just a big meanie. Just follow Jesus, ignore the rest. Uh, He also makes an interesting claim that although the entire Bible might be inspired, It's not all equally important. Clearly, the Gospels are more important because there are four of them as opposed to one account of the other biblical stories and accounts. Because as any math major can tell you, four is greater than one. You can write that down. Number three, Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or others. Now, this is the most blatantly wrong point of all of them, but Andy's ultimate agenda must make sin a man-centric thing rather than an offense to God and a breaking of God's laws. If he doesn't do this, he can't make his agenda work. Number four, Jesus promised justice in the end and invites us to trust him in the meantime. Now, as with most of the points, this Sounds correct on the surface, but this is telling us to stop being so judgy. We don't know how to judge, we're not good at it, so we should just love everyone and just let God sort it out in the end. Number five, Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. Again, a correct point on the surface, but again, Andy uses the message for a few agenda points, probably the worst of which was that Jesus can and did just forgive people at random. No faith, no repentance. He just handed out forgiveness like the candy store guy handed out candy in the original Willy Wonka movie. Number six, the church is God's agent of transformation personally, culturally, and globally. This was a thinly veiled homage to the Little God's Doctrine. 
claiming that we, the church body, are the literal incarnation of God now that Jesus has left the building, or the planet, or whatever. Number seven, Jesus' followers are multipliers. This entire message was nothing but Andy twisting the last few verses in Matthew of Jesus speaking, giving his apostles, disciples, us, a final command before his ascension. Andy completely twisted the scriptures. He put words in the mouths of the apostles, and even worse, he put words in the mouth of Jesus, and by doing so, he nullified the Bible. The Bible is now just a bit player in history as far as we're concerned. Like I said, I've left a lot out, but we uh, we really need to get to this message, and then we need to wrap up. And having skipped through and previewed this message a little bit, well, let me just say this. The pattern has been that these messages, which have been building on each other, have also been getting more heretical as we go along, and this appears to be the worst of the worst, so buckle up. We're about to fly into a massive storm. One note before we begin, this is going to be a long one. As each of his messages, like I said, built on the previous, so did the heresy, and it seems like everything he said in this one, it was just so bad and so wrong. I, I just I want you to see the depth of depravity here. Keep in mind, each week his conglomerate of churches holds about 35,000 congregants, and I would say that, in general, you're going to see at least another 15,000 views on YouTube of these messages. That's 50,000 people, probably more, that are drinking in the swill that Andy is placing in front of them while giving them a wide-eyed stare and telling them it's life-giving water. I mean, what would your thoughts, actions, reactions be if you were to be sitting in there and listening to this teaching? Put your... Put yourself in the place of someone that's hearing this. So with that in mind, let's begin, um, mostly so we can end. Again, we start with a hook, but this one is interesting. It's very telling. It starts with Andy telling us that he, about 15 years ago, was watching a YouTube video from a famous atheist who's written a lot of books, three of which Andy has read. Oh, and he also listens to this guy's podcast. Now, let me be clear. To be a solid Bible or Christian teacher, a solid discerner, you really have to know the enemy. But for most, that means consuming a selection of a number of wolves, discerning a number of false teachers, comparing what they've said to the biblical text, etc., etc. Andy watching YouTube, listening to the podcast, and reading his books, along with Andy being literally the enemy here and tearing apart Christianity, you know, to create his own version, this is Andy as a fan. He's a follower of this atheist, and that should really tell you something. Anyway, he said that uh, in this particular video, this atheist kept railing on the absurdity of Christianity. And I think I should, as I've been doing, quote Andy directly on this. Quote, And as I listened, and this was a really defining moment for me, it caused me to shift some things in terms of not my belief, but in terms of my approach, how I preach and teach and some of the language I use. It occurred to me as I listened to him that his entire talk was based on an assumption, a false assumption, but on an assumption that many Christians hold and many, in fact, evangelical Christians hold, the one I was raised on, and the assumption was a false assumption. But again, it, it, that, the... Basically, he was whole. His whole talk was based on the assumption that the foundation of our faith, um, what makes Christianity viable, what makes Christianity sustainable and plausible, the foundation of the Christian faith is a Bible without any errors. Or to use the modern term, an inerrant Bible. That was his assumption. And there you have it. Uh, this is what Charles raised Andy to believe, but Andy doesn't believe this to be true anymore. And he's going to get into this much deeper, obviously, but Andy is telling his 50,000 plus 
congregants and streamers and watchers that he, their pastor, their shepherd, their biblical guide, does not hold to the belief that the Bible is inerrant. And what's sad is that nobody, or everybody, didn't stand up and shout him down, that there wasn't a commotion as people got up and walked out. They listened. They took it in. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that for the vast majority of his followers, this was in fact wonderful news. Do you know how freeing this type of viewpoint is? If the Bible is full of errors, well, maybe I'm not as bad as I think I am. Maybe I don't have to try so hard. Maybe that thing that I thought was a sin, well, maybe that's not a sin. And he goes on, quote, So his argument went, hey, look at all these errors in the Bible, and he's pointing out historical errors and scientific errors and just some absurd things that were in the Old Testament in particular, and then some things in the New Testament as well. And his point is, look, these things aren't true. So if these things aren't true, the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, the Bible can't be trusted. If all of it isn't historically, mathematically, scientifically accurate, then why would anybody believe any of it, right? Might as well just dispense with the whole thing. And at the end of the day, we should just dispense with Christianity. And the crowd goes wild. It was amazing. So we're two minutes into a 42-minute sermon, and Andy has now made his point, right? Science, apparently, math, and history, uh, they have all proven that the Bible is full of errors. So Christians, and you can hear the venom dripping from his lips whenever he says that word, he just despises Christians. Christians have been teaching this silly theory that the Bible is without error. Now look, this atheist, and I'm not sure who he's talking about, he never names him, I have some ideas, but this atheist logic is actually spot on. He, he's absolutely correct. If the Bible claims something to be true, but it isn't true, then the Bible is not trustworthy. If you asked me a question, I confidently gave you an answer, and it was just flat out wrong, you would not consider me to be a trustworthy source. If the Bible is inaccurate in all of these areas containing all sorts of errors, then this atheist is right. Why should we believe any of it? How could we believe any of it? How could we know what to believe? If we believe only what science tells us to believe in the Bible, why do we need the Bible in science? One of those is unnecessary, and apparently it's the Bible. But if you think back to the first seven messages in the series, you'll be able to formulate how Andy gets out of this as still being a Jesus follower. Paul addressed this sort of concept in 1 Corinthians 15. I think we can all agree that being dead, then being not dead, is not scientifically possible, right? Reanimating a corpse three days after it ceased to be alive is only found in science fiction books and movies. But that's what Andy claims to believe, and Paul made it very clear. This unscientific assertion is central to Christianity. Andy makes this point later, but uses it wrongly. But let's look at the text quick. Quote, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. See, if Christ made a claim, if the apostles made a claim, but that claim was false, 
the entire thing falls apart. So the scientist is correct, and Andy has no foundation to stand on, as he's just wiped it out from underneath himself by conceding the humanist, atheist, and frankly incorrect assertion that the Bible is errant. But let me interject just a bit more into this yet another damnable message. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant? Now, this refers to the original writings, the original autographs, manuscripts. After that, copies made by other humans could contain copyist errors. Man could potentially insert other writings. I mean, look at the Apocrypha. That is not scripture. That was decided by men much smarter than you and I, with very specific criteria as to what should be included in the Bible. And although the Catholics still hold to the Apocrypha, the reality is there's no way that these books fit in with scripture based on the writers, if we even know who they are, the contradictions with verified scripture writings, the dates of these writings, etc. So inerrancy of the Bible means that the authors wrote exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write while using their own style and personality in doing the writing. Although the Bible is not a school textbook, when it speaks on math, it's correct. History, it's correct. Science, it's correct. Our English Bibles could potentially have errors, but I'd say at this point in our history, we have so many very early copies of the Bible, we've done a massive amount of comparisons, the questions have been answered. Even the English Bibles we have today, assuming a solid translation of the Greek and Hebrew, not some nutso man-made translation like the Passion Translation, those Bibles that we have today are inerrant. And this is what we see. History, for instance. Many historians, archaeologists, and atheists have scoffed at the Bible because it claims a person, ruler, or civilization existed with absolutely no proof until, oops, this dig just revealed a tablet with writing that referred to that person or civilization. I guess they did exist. The Bible is proven right at every turn. In addition to that, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Yes, I know, I'm well aware that dozens upon dozens of contradictions are claimed, and each one of those has been successfully refuted and easily explained in the context in which they exist. There are no contradictions. But Andy would rather side with his atheist friend, rather than the church fathers and historical theologians, the councils, the synods, and the conventions. Interesting, isn't it? Eh, we better keep trudging through this horse flop, though. Quote, but according to this misguided assumption, unfortunately, that too many Christians hold on to is what we're talking about today, is that the legitimacy of Christianity sits precariously atop a collection of errorless or inerrant ancient texts. That was the assumption of his talk, and then he just dismantled the text. And if you dismantle the text, you dismantle the Bible. You dismantle Christianity. We're done here. Assumption being, if there is an error in the Bible, Christianity becomes indefensible. It's a house of cards. You just pull out the creation account, you pull out Leviticus, you pull out some things in the New Testament, the whole thing comes crumbling down. Goodbye Bible, goodbye Christianity. Yes, Andy, that's exactly what happens. Now, I know that way too many Christians have gutted the creation account because, you know, hashtag science. But this is the question I asked back in the Lying Liars Who Lie segment. Can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? Now, all solid biblical teachers and preachers and pastors, Ken Ham, Mr. Creation Museum himself, even says that, yes, you can be saved and not believe in a young earth six-day creation. Personally, I'm not as convinced on that point. I won't say you can't, but because Jesus believed it, can you believe in Jesus if you don't believe what he believed? In my mind, that question must be settled. And he goes on to state that the assumptions that, quote, the legitimacy of Christianity sits precariously atop a collection of errorless ancient texts is not true. 
quote, which will come as a relief to some of you, but will sound like heresy to others. Yes, Andy, because it's heresy. He then leans into the camera and the audience and says, quote, so pay close attention. Now, editor's note here. I'm going to try not to just write an entire transcript of what he says. That's not going to be easy as, as from what I've seen and what I jumped through. And as I suspect, everything he says will be the worst thing that he's ever said. Bottom line, I would encourage you to go back and watch this entire series. And I'd welcome and encourage your feedback on what I've said. Where did I get it wrong? Where was I too harsh or not harsh enough? Continuing on. He spends a few minutes recapping what he's doing here, and he's using the same foundation that there are a lot of denominations and versions of Christianity, and everyone thinks differently and sees things differently and prioritizes certain texts over others differently, and everyone thinks they're right, and for nearly 2,000 years, new ideas have been woven into Christianity and become doctrine and dogma and theology, and those may be toxic and harmful and may make Christianity feel yucky to someone. And as we know, the good news of great joy is supposed to be applied to all humans for all time, inclusive. And so that's what Andy thinks, and that's what he's basing his uh, little series on. And if you don't believe some of these new toxic ideas, Andy goes on, you're not a real Christian. You're not a Jesus follower. Well, luckily, Andy is going to set us all straight and tell us what's actually fundamental and get us back on that Jesus-following path. And then Andy pulls out a couple of his favorite manipulation techniques while absolutely affirming the apostasy of his followers. Quote, And so the reason we're talking about this is because you're smart and you're honest and you're curious. And when smart, honest, curious people realize that non-essentials have been woven into fabric of their particular church or their particular denomination or their particular faith tradition, thoughtful and honest people feel like they have to step back and reevaluate, not quit believing in God and not even quit believing in the deity of Jesus. But they, it's like, wait a minute, I, 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 you talk a lot about the Bible, and you know the Bible, but I'm not sure you know Jesus. And so people feel the pressure to kind of deconstruct, and to deconstruct is to say, hey, I need to tear this thing down to the bare essentials. I need to tear this down to the fundamentals, so that I really know the foundation of what I believe and why I believe it. And I think my church has departed from that, or I think my denomination got it wrong, or I think my faith tradition isn't exactly right about this. So people step out, and generally they just step out of organized religion, and sometimes they never go back. And so Andy's solution to this problem is to rescue people from stepping out of organized religion and keep them in a church that's teaching a heretical doctrine. Interesting choice. Now, and admittedly this is the flesh speaking, if I'm going to hell anyway, why would I bother getting up on Sunday morning to hear Andy spew some morality tale from or about an error-laden ancient book about some guy that claimed to be God, but who really knows at this point? Why would I not just indulge all the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. I might as well have a great time while on earth, right? What exactly is Andy selling? Because I can tell you that if my choice is to be given morality tales and to-do lists, but it's all coming from a work of fiction, man, I'm going for all I can get on this planet because who knows, man? Who knows? So he recaps his first seven fundamentals of heresy, which we've already done. And here's a perk by being an Andy follower. After they slap down number eight in this message, they're going to send out an email blast to everyone with eight fundamentals so that we can just keep them in front of us. 
because I think I speak for everyone when I say, one, these are groundbreaking, two, these are life-changing, three, these are edifying, and four, sending an email to anyone these days definitely won't get lost in the hundreds of spam and legitimate emails and buried and forgotten about in approximately 8.3 minutes. <laughs> Could probably name Andy, Andy Spamley at this point. Okay, here we go. Andy admits that this one is going to be kind of tricky. No, not because he's preaching pure heresy, <laughs> but because Jesus never mentions the Bible in the Bible because the Bible wasn't a thing. It wasn't assembled the way we have it today at that time. See, this is one of his favorite straw men, apparently, and frankly, this really irritates me. Andy's a ravenous wolf. He's slaughtering the faith of the sheep. He's a shepherd that's literally leading his flock into the teeth of a pack of wolves. First, Jesus is God, meaning that being fully God, he stands outside of time, meaning that Jesus absolutely had the entire Bible already, even if it wasn't physically written down. The second, this shows how... No, I wasn't, I was going to say ignorant, but Andy, Andy is not ignorant. This shows the depth of Andy's depravity. Andy knows that the New Testament is toothless without the old, and the old is a very sad tale of impossible rules without the new. So let me just point this out, and this is going to be just rapid fire quick here. Jesus, personally, we're talking red letters, you know, the ones that Andy likes. He mentions the scriptures in Matthew 21, 42, 22, 29, 26, 54, 26, 56, Mark 12, 10, 12, 24, 14, 49, Luke 4, 21, 22, 37, 24, 27, John 5, 39, 7, 38, 742, 1318, 1712, and probably other places I've missed. He further mentions the word in six times in Matthew 13, 19 through 23, Matthew 15, 6 also. He mentions it eight times in Mark 4, 14 through 20, also in Mark 7, 13, and he mentions it four times in Luke 8, 11 through 15, and also Luke 8, 21 and 11, 28. Again, probably others I've missed. Jesus wouldn't have used the term Bible, obviously, and for Andy that creates a problem because he's a red-letter-only guy, which is a terrible theological position. So Andy says that if you stepped away from the faith because of something in the Bible, this message is for you. And I bet that it is, Andy. This is going to soft-pedal the Bible and give people that don't like the Bible a reason to claim a faith, quotes around that, that they absolutely do not have. He then pulls out a Bible that is dead. Charles gave him at the age of 16 with instructions to memorize the speech that David gave Goliath. And anytime Andy was tempted with something, when he comes up against something, just repeat the speech to the devil. Now, that's a bad idea. We don't need to speak to the devil, but okay. Because that something is Andy's Goliath. And no, that's not true. It's not his Goliath. You don't have a Goliath. None of us has a giant that's threatening our people with war. Goliath was a real person. Goliath was not a concept. That well-worn teaching that you're David or you're Esther or you're Daniel or you're Job, no, you're not. You're you. And the Bible has answers for your temptations, your trials, your ups and downs, your sins, your victories. The Bible has something to say about all of that, but you aren't those people. Andy then reveals his conundrum, which is quite possibly your and my experience, and thus our conundrum as well. Quote, here's the thing. Like many of you, I was given a little red Bible with my name on the front, and I was given this Bible and had several Bibles, but when the Bible was first presented to me, it was presented to me as God's Word, all true, through and through. God's Word, all true, through and through. And I believe that before I ever read that. Like many of you, 
And most evangelical Christians, of which I am one, most evangelical Christians hold to some biblical view or some view of biblical inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy, and you, most of you, probably do as well. However, and I'm not picking on you, I'm just pointing out something that's kind of obvious, regardless of which word you choose, if you choose one of these words, you probably couldn't define it exactly, but you just believe God gave us his word, and God spoke, and we have it, and you know that there's just a general sense that the Bible's inspired, or it's infallible, or there are no errors. It's inerrant. So then he goes into his decision to go into the ministry go to Dallas Theological Seminary because it had the highest view of the Bible of all the seminaries, he says. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. And he studied under Norman Geisler. Now, my memory, she ain't so good, but I believe that R.C. Sproul and Norman Geisler were contemporaries. I also believe that Sproul might have studied under Geisler as well. That's where I can't quite remember, not clear anymore. I do know that Sproul had a very high view of Geisler. Personally, I don't know enough about Geisler to say yay or nay, but I do know that Sproul headed up the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, and that when he headed up the team that created the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, Geisler was on his team. Well, Stanley said that as part of his study under Geisler, they had to read his book entitled, wait for it, Inerrancy. Stanley said that Geisler was the champion of biblical inerrancy, and he took every class he could with Geisler. He said that during that time, that's when he knew that God was real. He had believed it before, but now he knew it. So then we get into the uh, butthurt portion of our sermon. A couple of years ago, Andy apparently preached a series where he spoke of the Bible, how he's going to be speaking of it in this message again. Quote, and some evangelical leaders took me to task on social media, said all kinds of critical, rude things. Andy doesn't believe the Bible. Andy, da-da, da-da, da-da. And the problem with when they criticize me, they're really criticizing you. And he looks out at the congregation. And I don't care if they criticize me because I just take the most strange ones, make pictures of them, and put them on my phone to show my kids so it doesn't bother me. But when they start criticizing the people in our church, oh, you know, they're just following along. They're goats. They're mindless. And I'm like, are you kidding? We have the smartest, most insightful, most curious group of Jesus followers in the world in our churches. That's what I think about you. Now, shall I pause here for a moment and let you clean up the vomit? No? We're good? All right, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. He goes on to spin this tale that about two-thirds of the way through his sermon series, he got a call out of nowhere from none other than Norman Geisler. Geisler apparently told him that what he was preaching at that time was great apologetics, and most people don't understand the Bible, and he should just keep going. And not just keep going, he should write a book. So... Andy wrote Irresistible in response to Geisler's prompting and encouragement. Andy didn't want to write it, but Geisler convinced him to do it. Now, I'm going to call Stanley a liar on this one. Bald-faced, complete and total liar. I legitimately believe that Andy has no problem lying to push his agenda, so I am calling him a liar because that's what he is. And on what basis do I claim this? Well, he said he was taken aback about writing a book. He didn't have time to write a book, but Geisler convinced him. Well, if you look up the books that Andy has written, it appears that that's pretty much all he's ever done. He's written 25 books since 1997. 25! That's almost one a year. He wrote 21 books before Irresistible, and three since then. This is basically what he does. He just writes his thoughts, unfortunately. Next, Geisler died in July of 2019. The sermon series that Geisler allegedly called him about had its first message take place on July 17, 2018. It's a six-part series, and he said that he was two-thirds of the way through when he got this phone call, meaning it was mid-August, 
when Geisler called him. Irresistible, the book, was published on September 18th, 2018. One month, one single month, after Geisler convinced him to write the book. A 336-page book, thought out, laid out, sketched out, written out, edited, reviewed so as to include various reviews from various people, all in a month. Um, okay, that's literally not possible. And here's a curious thing. Apparently in July 2018, Geisler was in good enough health and state of mind to call Andy and tell him he was on the right track. But when you look at his book, well, Andy has nine reviews in the front of his book, not one of them by Geisler. He has one from Craig Groeschel, another very popular heretic. He has one by John Maxwell, someone we shouldn't necessarily look to for theological prowess. He has one from another professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, but none from Geisler. The dedication of his book is to his wife, which that's fine. He's got about a page of acknowledgments, though. His congregation, Thomas Horrocks, someone who he apparently met on Twitter that had written a paper defending Stanley's preaching, and he became friends with this yes-man— he acknowledged in his acknowledgments some individuals at Zondervan, someone on the project side, Susie Gray, and of course his wife. Geisler was literally the smartest man Stanley knew, according to what he said. He was an academic giant. He was a stalwart of biblical inerrancy and personally called him one month before the 336-page book was published to encourage him to write a book, and Geisler doesn't even get an acknowledgment? <laughs> Like I said, Andy is a bald-faced liar. But do you think that his congregation or his YouTube followers will take the 15 minutes that I did to verify his claim? No, not a chance. They're enamored by Andy and his fame. This is sick. This is, it's just gross. Somehow, I'm more disgusted by Andy than I was previously, and I didn't think that was possible. And then he has the audacity to claim that he's assuming that Geisler is watching him present this heresy after making it clear that he died in 2019, to make sure Andy doesn't lead anyone astray. Yet again, another manipulation technique to call to an authority. Oh, well, if, if Andy knows that this academic genius is peering over the edge of heaven watching him, surely he wouldn't tell us anything untrue. <laughs> oh, it's just sick. So Andy goes on. Uh, he gives us, I guess, his thesis statement, his base claim for this entire whatever this thing is. Quote, the bottom line is this. Bottom line is this. When it comes to what you must believe about the Bible in order to be a follower of Jesus, it really boils down to this. You have to believe, when it comes to the Bible, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are reliable accounts of actual events. That's it. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are a reliable account of actual events. Because if you adopt any one of the four Gospels as something that's a reliable account of actual events, you're there. Because both of, all four of these Gospels, present Jesus as God's Son and your King. And everything we've talked about in this series flows from that one simple idea. It means that what he said about God is true, what Jesus said about you is true, and what Jesus said about the Hebrew Scriptures is true. That Christianity does not rise or fall on our ability to prove that the Bible is without error. Error. I learned this from the guy who edited the book, Inerrancy. So, now we don't have to believe the Old Testament. We don't have to believe most of the New Testament. We don't even have to believe the Gospels. Just pick one. Just one. Your favorite one. He's whittled the Bible down to one book. And in fact, we don't have to believe that the Gospel we choose is error-free, just that the writing is a reliable account of real, real events. 
you know, stream of thought moment here. I've been pretty liberal with the amount of quoting I've done with Andy in this whole series of reviews I've done. Andy keeps referring to Jesus as our king. I agree. He is our king. But in my reviews, I've got around 40 times that I counted that I've quoted Andy where he's referred to Jesus as king. Only one time has he referred to him as savior. And that one time was when he said that our savior would be with us because we chose to be with him. You know, we're the sovereign one in that equation, not Jesus. He's called him son of God once or twice. Not once has he referred to him as Lord or master. I find that to be disturbing. Okay. Back to what he said in his quote. So I agree that if you get very technical, you don't have to believe the Bible or have read the Bible. I mean, look at the thief on the cross. Salvation is repentance and faith, right? The thief, when he rebuked the other thief and stated that they were hanging there for real crimes, unlike Jesus, that their punishment was just, that they deserved what they were getting, that was a form of repentance. It was admitting his guilt. When he asked the other thief if he didn't even fear God and then asked Jesus to remember him, well, that was faith. The thief didn't have the Bible. He didn't have the scriptures. We have no indication that he believed anything of the law or the prophets, and yet he was saved. And we can see his repentance and faith that led to salvation. But that's not what we're talking about here. And he's talking about people who have the Bible, the full Bible, and aren't just expressing belief in one book, rather expressing disbelief in the Bible almost entirely in the biblical accounts and the ability of God, you know, God to protect his word, etc., Although I could concede technical agreement with what he said, it's what he's not saying directly. That's really the problem I've got. And then I'd have to come to a question of plausibility. If I have a cookbook and it has 66 recipes for various things, if I look at or I try 65 recipes and they don't work, they're just terrible, they're wrong at almost every turn, am I seriously going to trust the other one? Okay, bad analogy, I know. But pick uh, anything, a user's manual, uh, an instruction manual, a school textbook for any class. If 90% plus is wrong, are we really going to say that it's worth reading or worth following? No. The atheist Andy started with is right. If we can't believe the Bible, Christianity collapses. Andy who, as I've said many times, and I'll get to this, is a red-letter-only Jesus follower. I guarantee he knows how the Bible all fits together, how the old and new are both crucial for a full understanding of the Bible. I guarantee he knows the debates between creation and evolution, the views of eschatology, and the supposed errors and refutation of those errors. I mean, Andy is not a stupid guy. He tries to play the, the wide-eyed, innocent country boy, but he's not. He's not naive. He's not confused. He's not searching for the truth. He's purposefully lying to everyone that hears him. His entire goal as a pastor is to push his agenda, which is based on a seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven church philosophy. Just get butts in the seats, and because of his weakness and cowardice as a man, as an alleged man of God, his agenda has now morphed to require a woke agenda to invade and infest the church and the flock that he has been charged with protecting. I would hate to be him on Judgment Day, but I'd also hate to be him if he ever comes to his senses before his life on this earth is through. The guilt that he would be racked with, the number of people he misled all the way to their grave, all the way to hell, it would be devastating. So Andy goes on with more historical lies. The people were following Jesus for 300 years before the first Bible was assembled. Now his disingenuity is disturbing. 
here. The Old Testament was essentially established as we have it today by the time that Jesus was born on this earth. The apostles and New Testament writers were already referring to the writings of other apostles as scripture prior to the end of our Bible. What he's saying is that a bound book wasn't around for 300 years, but that doesn't mean that the Bible, the contents of the Bible, weren't circulating. That's why we have over 5,500 manuscripts of varying degree of the New Testament alone. Faithful men, unlike Andy, meticulously copied the writings that would eventually be collected and bound into a single book, and they passed them out everywhere. Andy, once again, is lying, or at best twisting, to, to his flock for his agenda. He says that first century Christians followed Jesus because they saw him raised from the dead, not from what they read. Really, Andy? How many actually saw Jesus post-resurrection? We know of somewhere north of 500 people, right? Well, let's just say that was just counting men, so make that families. So throw a family in there. It's 2,000 people, north of 2,000 people. So that's all there were in the first century, just a couple thousand people that followed Jesus? It seems like what Jesus told Thomas about blessed are those who believe without seeing— Seems like Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. I, maybe he still had some of that post-death brain fog, you know, like you get. No, Christians, both converted Jews and Gentiles, almost entirely followed Jesus because they read the letters from the apostles, because the apostles came and told them of not only the resurrection, but depending on the audience, they would start all the way back at creation, establishing who God is, what sin is, etc., etc. And eventually, through the use of the Old Testament, they would explain who Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, actually is. Curiously, the original term used for these Jesus followers was actually followers of the way. Well, Jesus is the way, yes, but the way encompassed the entire scriptures. They weren't called Jesus followers. Andy is just, he's just slimy. So Andy concedes that there is a case to be made for biblical inerrancy. Then he grabs Geisler's book from behind his little TV. He flips the 526 pages as he says that if you give him three weeks of your undivided attention, well, he could make the case for, you know, the inerrancy of the Bible because he studied under the master. Well, Andy... You've wasted eight weeks ham-fistedly destroying the faith and damning thousands or tens of thousands with your heresy. Seems like a study to show the Bible is in fact inerrant would be a better use of your time, but, but, but no, it's not. Because, quote, but is this view of the Bible an essential to being a follower of Jesus? No. See, he says that Christianity rises or falls on the identity of Jesus, which is validated by the resurrection of Jesus. And then he sets up another straw man. Quote, Christian apologists build their case on the resurrection of Jesus, not the inspiration of the Bible. And this is because they know that our faith isn't founded on an inspired text, but on the resurrection of Jesus. And he then proves it using the Bible using not a gospel or a word of Jesus, but Paul, back again in 1 Corinthians, don't worry, he only uses one or two verses because he, he can use that for his purposes. Quote, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. See, you don't need to believe the Bible. Jesus rose from the dead and that's what dictates belief. But again, this is Andy the Bible twister. This verse used in the context of the passage and letter in which it's written, which I covered without knowing he was going to twist it here just a few minutes back, this is a statement on the veracity of Christianity completely. Paul was refuting false teaching, ironically, that there was no resurrection of the dead. So Paul, in his oft-used lines of logic, stated that if there is categorically no resurrection, then Jesus couldn't have been resurrected. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, what's the point of preaching or believing in Jesus at all? We're all doomed. This in no way says that all you have to believe is that Jesus was resurrected while calling the rest of the Bible lies, half-truths, and fantasy. 
This is a false dichotomy, an either-or fallacy that Andy has set up. Well, let me ask you, Andy, how do you know that Jesus was resurrected? Well, it's because people saw him post-resurrection and confirmed it, right? But, but did you see him? And no, Andy did not see him. Did you talk to anyone that saw him? No, Andy didn't talk to anyone who saw him. Well, how do you know then, Andy? Well, he reads it in the Bible. But the same science that says a bunch of Old Testament is clearly poetry or stories created by low-IQ caveman-like people to explain things they don't understand, well, that same science says that people don't come back to life, Andy. Do you believe science or do you believe a written account in the Bible? And, and why do you believe certain unprovable claims in the Bible but not others? His religious worldview is a disaster, but it has to be in order to push his agenda. In fact, Andy goes on to say that the only reason we can believe what Jesus said about himself was because his resurrection validated his claims. But how do we know what Jesus said about himself? How do we know that people had a problem with what Jesus said? I mean, sure, there are a few other authors like Josephus that have some historical accounting of Jesus and this time period in general. But for that matter, how do we know that Josephus was being honest in his writings? We only know what Jesus claimed about himself from what others wrote, claiming that they wrote what he said, which is now captured in our Bibles. Andy's entire argument hinges on faith that part of the Bible is true, even the impossible parts, like the resurrection. And I'm assuming Andy believes that Jesus performed the recorded miracles. I don't know that to be true. I'm assuming that, which he, he has to accept 100% by faith if he does believe that. See, Andy is a cult leader at this point. This religion that he's created has been tailored and created by Andy. That's the definition of a cult. So Andy sums up Paul's point in 1 Corinthians as this, quote, The foundation of our faith is an event that launched a movement that assembled the Bible, and then adds, in the fourth century. But why did God give us the Bible? Or did he not? Was he powerless to overcome man's desires? Man just putting all this crazy, unscientific, inaccurate stuff in a book, claiming that God did things and said things, claiming events took place that never took place, and God apparently was up on his throne just wringing his hands, just sucking on his long white beard, just in anguish. Oh, I hope my creation, well, those humans that evolved from the matter I created initially, don't take all of this seriously. It could really throw a spanner in the works. <laughs> oh, bother, what a mess they're making. If only I was able to stop them from doing this. You see, Andy's God is an impotent, weak, spineless, brainless, doddering old fool that had fits of rage and killed people for just loving who they wanted to love and was basically out of control and powerless at the same time. And thankfully, oh man, Jesus popped into existence and got this thing fixed up. <laughs> Phew! Just in the nick of time. Now, somehow, Andy claims that even though all we need to believe is one of the Gospels, and we only need to believe that it's mostly accurate, but he still says that the Bible is, quote, extraordinarily important. While the Bible's not the foundation of our faith, it's certainly not irrelevant to our faith. <laughs> nice concession. But, and this is my point, this is so important, there is no single, there is no single modern view of inspiration that is essential to following Jesus. Now, he defines modern in a moment, or at least he says he's going to, and he doesn't. He doesn't do it for quite a while, actually. He just talks and talks and says nothing, and he says nothing about three or four times over and over again, repeatedly and redundantly. Now, this isn't even splitting hairs. The only reason Andy can claim to be a Jesus follower is because he believes that at least one account is protected to the point that it's generally correct. Now, call it inspired, call it infallible, call it inerrant, I don't care what you call it. He believes it, but he's selective for a purpose. Quote, now some of you are thinking, Andy, I don't even care about this. You're raising questions I've never asked. Can we just talk about something practical? Well, I get that. We'll get back to that. <laughs> 
And welcome to the problem with the church today. A bunch of milk-suckling baby Christians, or a bunch of immature people that aren't Christians, but wolves like Andy tell them they are. People who just want a TED Talk to help them get their kids to shape up or to rescue their marriage or to pay off their debt. Quote, Some of you are thinking, Andy, why belabor the point? You're going to risk your career. Why is this so important? This is extraordinarily important to you, and it's extraordinarily important to me, and it's extraordinarily important to us, and let me tell you who else it's important to. It's important to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Okay, now, first of all, he's not risking his career. Uh, There are millions upon millions of people that suck right up to this sort of teaching because it tickles their ears. But more importantly, his statement about your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, this should terrify you. Two thoughts pop into my head with this statement. The first is that I'm pretty sure that that sound I'm hearing in the distance is the millstone manufacturing plant cranking up production. The second is, quote, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. I also think of the LGBTQQIA2 plus music video ugh, that came out a couple years ago with this gay choir singing a song entitled, We're Coming for Your Children. Andy is absolutely coming for your children. Make no mistake about it. Quote, and why would I use the word modern? Here's why. When a specific view of inspiration... When a specific view of inspiration that is, you know, verbally inspired, or there aren't any errors, or whatever view, whatever, however you want to tease that out, however you want to define it, when a specific view of inspiration is elevated to the status of doctrine, fundamental, essential, the Bible becomes an obstacle to faith for some people. In other words, when a view of inspiration is elevated to the status of Jesus, the Son of God, when it's elevated to the status of doctrine and essential, the actual Bible, this is tragic, the Bible becomes an obstacle to faith. It's why I want to say again, if you left your faith because of something about this or in this that you got to lean back in at least for a few minutes, when we make a specific view of inspiration elevated to the status of doctrine, do you know what happens? We eliminate room for questions. And then he goes on with this little improv play that he makes up on the spot about someone trying to ask a question, just desperately trying to ask anything. And that darn inspired Bible believer just keeps shutting him down. I hate that guy. Also note that he never answered the question as to why he used the term modern. He does later, but it doesn't really matter to me. Modern, historic, who cares? From my knowledge, there's no difference in the view of what inspired means or meant. Okay. Well, back to this overriding concept that Christianity must attract all people. This is one of Andy's favorites. Not all, as in people from all around the world, from each people group, etc. He literally means all. If the message of the Bible leaves even one person out, we need to eliminate that nasty part or change it or weaken it. We must make Christianity, eh, now, following Jesus, attractive to all people everywhere for all time. Think about just the United States. The division between the people right now and how many are absolutely violent, combative haters of everything to do with Christianity. Think about Muslim terrorists that behead and burn Christians alive. But Andy, living a very comfortable life, living a first world life with his only persecution coming from other mean pastors, teachers, and theologians, Andy has no idea what he's saying. He's focused on his LGBTQQIA2 plus agenda. That's what he's dismantling and deconstructing his faith and the faith of his congregants and the Bible for. Now, his claim that if we believe that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, mean that questions can't be asked, that people are just shut down, that's stupid. His claim is stupid. It's, it's flat out plain old stupid. And he's not a stupid man, like I've said, so it's not stupid. It's actually a lie, and he knows it. Any Christian worth their salt can tell you that because the Bible is inspired and inerrant, it invites questions. 
Ask anything you want, the Bible has answers. And not just answers, answers you can trust because it's inerrant and inspired. The second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen says, quote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Raise your hand if those verses were rattling around in your head. I wonder what Andy does with this little text. (laughs) Oh, never mind. Nothing, because those aren't, you know, in red letters. And as I established a few segments back, Andy only uses the non-red letter words in the Bible in order to dismantle the Bible. Quote, you can't ask questions, you can't be curious, and if I could poke around a little bit for some of you who are raised like me and believe like me, not only can you not be curious, sometimes you can't be honest. Then he flips to the Old Testament area somewhere, and he says, because you're reading this and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to read that part anymore. And then he flips to Revelation somewhere. Oh, no, no, I don't like that part with Jesus as a sword in his mouth, and he's going to smite his enemies and be covered. Oh, I don't like that part either. So you know what? I'm just going to kind of stay right here in the middle. I like Psalms, and I like Jesus. And that other stuff, somebody else is going to have to figure. You can't even be honest about your own faith and your own view of the Bible. The reason some of you chuckle like, (laughs) and then they chuckle like that. Exactly. My kids keep asking me about those parts, and I'm like, don't look at those parts, look at other parts, right? Well, that's no way to live. That's no way to worship. That's no way to approach God who created 600 plus different kinds of beetles. I mean, are you kidding? We should be the most curious and the most open-minded people in the world because our faith isn't anchored to a perfect text. Our faith is anchored to a solitary event outside the walls of Jerusalem that changed everything, including the people who were there and knew Jesus personally. And Andy, the only reason you know that or believe that, is because you believe that part of the text is inerrant, at least to the point that you can trust an unscientific account of a dead man coming back to life. But look, I'd agree with him. That is no way to live or worship. Just because you don't like something in the Bible doesn't make it not true. Just because you don't like something in the Bible doesn't mean you should avoid it. What he's telling his flock is to just decide what they like and just do that. He's purposefully telling them to stay immature, uninformed, and I'd argue unsaved, as he has yet to give even a cursory gospel message in eight weeks. Now, maybe his daddy, Charles, was an unbearable, overbearing man in the home. I guarantee that Charles stood on a foundation of inspired, and I'd guess that he claimed that at least most of the Bible is inerrant. Maybe poor little Andy was traumatized, and today at 65 years old, he still can't come to terms with it. I don't know. But what I do know is that he just gave 50,000 plus followers online and in person permission to just make their own Christian cult, as long as they use a gospel and they follow Jesus. Not apparently the Jesus in Revelation, though. Not He's ooh, ooh, scary, icky. Only the Jesus in their gospel of choice, of course. Now, I say again, I have a hard time believing that Norman Geisler, a man that R.C. Sproul spoke of and held in the highest regard, would have been fine with saying, quote, I'll just stay in the middle. I like Psalms, and I like this part about Jesus. Now, I also agree that Christians should be the most curious, and historically we have been. That's why we have fields of science today. And don't confuse that with modern science, which is a bastardization of the term, as a large portion of modern science has nothing to do with science. It's a religion unto itself. Christians should be the most curious, but should not be the most open-minded, depending on how you mean that. If he means that in the gay agenda way, no. 
If he means that in the evolution way, no. If he means that as in discovering new aspects of our creation, well, of course. But we know how he means it. He wants you to be open-minded to throwing out parts of the Bible if it doesn't fit your personal worldview. See, if your open-mindedness runs in contradiction to clear biblical teaching, one of them has to go. And Andy believes that man is sovereign, so the Bible has to go. A Christian believes the Bible is inerrant because God is sovereign, so the open-minded contradiction needs to go, and your thinking needs to come back in line with the teaching of the Bible. I've got to say, I'm, I'm literally shocked at how open Andy is with his heresy, and that is saying something. Now, as for our faith, the anchor of our faith, our faith in the Bible, can't be divorced from Jesus or vice versa. There aren't multiple aspects of Christianity that you can scoop up and ignore like a buffet. The Bible is the documentation of our faith, with the central focus being Jesus, all of Jesus, even that part in Revelation that Andy isn't happy with, because as I said, Andy absolutely believes that everyone is going to heaven in the end. I guarantee it. Quote, us conservatives, and I'm so conservative theologically, us conservatives, we trend this way because we were told, right? We were told an error, an error in any part of it, undermines the credibility of all of it. And I hear this all the time, that an error in any part of it undermines the credibility of all of it. Okay, look up here. That's true of your passport. And then some demonic cackling from the congregation. That is not true of the Bible. The all-or-nothing view is mistaken, and it is unnecessary, and the problem is, the reason we're talking about it, it creates an unnecessary off-ramp to faith. It sets people up for a crisis of faith. The apparent discrepancies and contradictions, this is fascinating to me because I like church history. You know, the apparent contradictions, it says this, but it says that, and these guys don't agree. Do you know, check it out, that stuff didn't bother anybody in Christendom for the first five centuries? In other words, the people that followed the apostles, the people that wrote and led and suffered and died to protect these ancient texts, none of them were hung up on the fact that some of the details didn't coordinate and they didn't understand how some of the things in the Old Testament could have happened. They just weren't hung up on that. Well, it's because they understood it, you fool. They understood that there were no contradictions. They understood that they didn't need to know the mechanics of how certain things happened. They had a high view of God, Andy. They understood that if the Bible seemed to contradict itself, it's either a bad copy of the text or a problem rested with them, not the Bible. Andy has a high view of himself, not God, certainly not the Bible. As for the passport, I'm glad he finds that to be a laughing matter and your passport to be more infallible than the very word of God. That's just amazing. So he comes back to the word modern, finally, and I mostly don't care, uh, but uh, then after hearing his explanation, no, you need to hear this too. <laughs> Quote, and the reason a minute ago that I inserted the word modern, modern, is this, and this is so important, everything is important, the precision, the precision that we demand from written text today was not an ancient expectation. The precision, in other words, we want grammar to be right, spelling to be right, everything to match, you know, if it's a copy of... You know, we're making a copy. Oh, it's right. The reason we demand such precision in our modern world is because we can pull it off. But in a world that was mostly illiterate, and they were illiterate not because they weren't smart, they were illiterate because in order to be able to read, there has to be something to read, and texts were so expensive and people didn't have access. So in a world that was primarily illiterate, the precision that we demand from a written text was not even, it was, they never even considered such a thing back in ancient times. <laughs> what? We covered the literacy rate thing a few segments back. You can go back and find that somewhere. His claim that they were mostly illiterate is a lie. I'll just say this. The, the painstaking way that these 
people copied the Hebrew text was heads and tails better than anything we do today. Now, I may agree with him with the care they took when it comes to other texts, but the biblical copyists would use a different pen for each stroke of the word Yahweh. I'm doing this from memory, so I know I'm close. I think that's right. If they made an error anywhere while copying any of the text, they would burn the entire manuscript and start over. They would proofread by doing things like counting every so many letters and compare the original to the copy to ensure that that letter was in the right position, and on it goes. As a comparison... Have you read any of the online news today from reputable, big-name news sources? You can find error after error after error. It usually starts in the headline somewhere. There's no precision in writing today because it doesn't matter. But have you read your Bible? It's rare to find an error in a Bible. About the worst you'll find is maybe a misspelling that got past the software, but even that is nearly impossible to come across. The precision that the Bible is copied today is along the same lines as when they did it by hand. But that's not even what Andy is talking about. I'd say that just about every Christian that holds to inerrancy freely admits that there could be copyist errors in the autographs. Those can be corrected in the next copy. It's not a big deal. The content and context is not in error, though. There have been some manuscripts that have been intentionally modified by an overzealous writer, but those are easily ferreted out and removed. What Andy is talking about is the apparent contradictions found in the Bible. And I say again, there are none. He says that the resurrection account has differences. Well, each gospel writer wrote to a specific audience, so each writer had different things they considered to be important, and there are no contradictions. If one writer says a woman, and the other says multiple women, well, one can actually fit inside of multiple. But that writer was only concerned with the one. Every alleged contradiction in the Bible has been addressed and clarified, but Andy can't have that, because Andy not only doesn't believe large chunks of the Bible, he doesn't like large chunks of the Bible. But again, he says that having an inerrant Bible is not essential for following Jesus, and I would say that's technically correct, but what did Jesus think of the scriptures? Because he sure seemed to take them as accurate and inspired, so can you believe and follow Jesus if you don't believe him and his beliefs? For instance, could I sit under Andy as my pastor? Well, no, because I find him to be a disingenuous, self-important, lying snake. So although he says some things that are true, occasional things that I can actually agree with, and he's probably, and this is complete speculation, he's probably a fairly moral person, per human standards, I could never follow him because I don't and I can't believe him. So as we close in on the end, thankfully he says that the reason they do ministry the way they do, the reason he's making this a major point is based on the Jerusalem Council written about in the book of Acts, if we can even believe that ancient writing. Now, this was the meeting to decide how the new covenant affected the old covenant laws to figure out how to address the claims of the Judaizers, etc. And rightly, he says that this wasn't a discussion about inspiration, it was a discussion about application. How do we apply the old to the new reality? Now, Andy backs up to the account of Peter being told to go with the Gentile men to Cornelius' house, a Gentile centurion. Now, Andy, because he's never met a scripture he didn't want to twist, says that Peter was invited to a Gentile's home and didn't want to go. He was like, quote, I ain't going. But he goes and starts his introduction to a room full of Gentiles like this. Um, I've never entered the home of a Gentile before, and I never wanted to. Implication, you people are nasty. But God made me come here. Okay, so here's what I want to say. Really, read it for yourself. It is so offensive. 
So unlike Andy Sheeple, let's read it for ourselves, shall we? This is a dream or a vision that Peter had in Acts 10, had a large sheet full of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, coming out of heaven, and God telling him to kill and eat. And Peter, appearing to believe this to be a test, declined that he's never eaten anything unclean. And then God said, quote, what God has cleansed no longer considered defiled. Well, this happened three times, and the sheet was taken back up into heaven. Peter came out of his trance and was left pondering the saying, At that time, the men sent by Cornelius came and called out at the gate, trying to find him. Peter, again, had a word from God come to him, quote, Behold, three men are looking for you, but rise up, go down, and accompany them without taking issue at all, for I have sent them myself. Well, he went down, inquired of them about what they wanted. They told him he let them lodge there for the night, and the next day he went with them. As Peter drew near the house, Cornelius actually came out and fell down to worship Peter. Peter said, quote, stand up. I too am just a man. Then he entered the house. He found a large group of people there and said this, quote, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man defiled or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was summoned. So I ask for what reason you have summoned me. Then after Cornelius answered his question, Peter started his proclamation of the gospel by saying, quote, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. Now, can you tell me where Peter didn't want to go? Can you tell me where he came in and just flat out insulted Cornelius or his family and guests by implying they were nasty? Can you show me where God made me come here? Can you show me how Peter was at all offensive? Andy told them to read it for themselves. I guarantee none of them did. And I have my doubts that Andy has read that story in years and years. This has very little to do with this sermon or this review. It's just, it's just more proof that Andy is just a Bible twister. So, twisting, Andy flips back to the Jerusalem council and says that Peter tells the group, quote, Look, I get it. I get it. I was as anti-Gentile, and I was so worried about getting Gentile stuff on me as you guys. But I'm telling you, God, I don't know why he drug it out, God has opened the way to the whole world. And if it means setting aside in some way the way we're thinking about it, our scripture, our Bible, in order to let them in, we do it. Okay. Okay, hold up. Let's read it. You ever wonder why these guys don't just read the text? (laughs) Acts 15, starting with verse 7, quote, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Okay, same test. Tell me where Peter was worried about Gentile stuff getting on him. And then tell me where Peter said to set aside the scriptures. See, Peter simply said that the game had changed, that before the old covenant was a covenant of works, or at least there was an impossible number of works to comply with, but Jesus had made a way to be saved by grace through faith, a new covenant. So why put the burden of the old covenant on them that was no longer necessary? 
Peter never said to set the scriptures aside. He never nullified the Bible as they had it. Furthermore, the apostles and church fathers were not the gatekeepers of salvation. Despite Andy saying that Peter suggested they needed to set the scriptures aside in order to let them in, the Gentiles were already in, you know, per God. The question was simply, how do we view the covenant made with the Israelites prior to this new covenant, this salvation made possible by Jesus? But, undeterred and uncorrected, Andy goes on with the response of James. Well, not the entire response, only a fragment of a sentence of the response of James. Andy says, quote, So James says, It is my judgment, and I love this. In fact, this statement is on the walls of all of our offices at all of our churches. These are our marching orders. This is why I'm making such a big deal of it. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, if our text has become an obstacle, we need to remove it. These men and women are trying to get into the kingdom of God, and there's no way in the world we should allow our Bible to be an obstacle to their faith, because the essential element of our faith is a brand new king. The shadow caster has arrived. Everything our text pointed to is a reality, and just as they decided they shouldn't make it difficult for Gentiles who were turning to God, we're not going to make it difficult either. The Bible should never be an obstacle to faith. <laughs> wow! <laughs> okay, first, did you notice the irony? Everything that was predicted in their text, the Old Testament, is now a reality. It almost seems like the Old Testament was inerrant and inspired. Eh, just saying. Second, Andy is using a sentence fragment as their guiding principle. James summarizes the words of Peter, that God has now chosen a portion of the Gentiles for his name, and then relates it to Old Testament prophecy, which almost now seems inerrant and inspired. Then he says, quote, Therefore I judge that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what is strangled, and from blood. They didn't set aside the scriptures. They held a council and made a determination what of the Levitical or the Mosaic laws continued to apply as best they could. But see, Andy can't finish that sentence, not with that pesky sexual immorality thing in there, because then someone would ask, well, what does that mean? And then Andy's agenda is in jeopardy. So he just takes the first fragment to basically say, hey, whatever we need to do, let's do it. If that means throwing the Bible in the trash, that means ignoring clear teaching and commands, if that means ignoring or redefining sin to something more palatable, whatever. Basically, we just want to be able to make whatever religion they want and then pronounce that they're good, heaven bound. And that shadow caster thing, man, that sounds demonic to me. It appears that it's a term that a man in the gospel coalition used to describe Jesus. You know, the Sabbath was the shadow of the real, Jesus being the caster of that shadow. Of course, this man, Dane Ortland, he wrote the book Gentle and Lowly, which was apparently a runaway bestseller in the evangelical world, which makes gentle and lowly Jesus's primary characteristics, painting him in a very effeminate way. It won the praise of Russell Moore. Ugh. Paul David Tripp, who I've read one book of, and it was it was good, but he definitely doesn't come off as a manly man, and Sam Alberry, a gay but celibate Anglican priest. Regardless, Shadowcaster just sounds evil, especially when Andy whispers it. Lastly, the Bible will always be an obstacle to the unsaved. God will be an obstacle. Jesus will be an obstacle. Repentance will be an obstacle. Christianity isn't supposed to be a social club. It's not supposed to be something that people can just wander into or that appeals to everyone. The only way it could appeal to everyone is if you don't push against human nature. You know, sin nature. And this is the goal and agenda of Andy. Make it easy. Make it fun. Make it popular. Make it trendy. Make it worldly. 
basically remove as much Christianity as it takes to make Christianity palatable to the unsaved. And then, as if he heard me say that uh, what he's claiming to believe in is in the Bible, so how does he square that with his view? Well, he put me in my place, so I'll, I'll have to apologize here. Quote, and I know, and I hear the critics already, it's like, yeah, but the Gospels are in the Bible. Okay, okay. just, we've talked about the historical sequence of things. That's a ridiculous argument. There was no, Matthew predated, quote, the Bible. Mark predated, the all the New Testament documents predated the Bible because the Bible wasn't assembled until the 4th century. So there's no argument to be made there. Oh, I mean, I mean, there we go. So if the writings predate the first official assembly of the Bible, then they're trustworthy. Might I submit for review the entire Old Testament then? I have no idea what he's saying there, and I don't think anyone else does either. I don't think Andy does either. And that, mercifully, brings us to fundamental number eight. Quote, The Bible documents God's redemptive activity in the world culminating in the arrival of his final king. Ah, again with this king thing. Not Savior, not Lord, not God-man, not Son of God— king. It's, it's odd, and I guarantee that there is something there. So the Bible documents this, but we can't trust it. So if we have untrustworthy documentation, we literally have nothing. But he claims that the first century Gentiles got interested in the Old Testament despite them not being interested in the Jewish people or the culture, but because they realized that it documented God's redemptive activity, which culminated in their lifetime the arrival of their final king. And I'd have to ask, uh, really? Because those words put in that order, well, they make a comprehensible sentence while not making any logical sense at all. I'd argue that the first century Gentile Christians were interested in the Old Testament because that's what they had. All the teaching, all the letters, it all pointed back to history, the prophecy, the law, the old covenant, all leading to the new, to Jesus, to a Savior. Quote, the Bible provides us with the backstory and the main story. The Bible provides us with the backstory. The Old Testament is a saga of God's people clinging to Yahweh as he prepares the world for his final king. It's ancient history with a divine purpose. It's an over-the-top graphic account of God wading into the mess created by our sin to see the story of our redemption played out to its bitter and bloody crucify him, crucify him, end. And this story arc of the Bible should apparently make us all drop to our knees in gratitude for what God has done. But why? We can't trust the Bible. Why should we do that if we don't even know what's true and what's not? Now, Andy says he reads his Bible every single day, and we should too, even if we're skeptical. Because if nothing else, the words of Jesus written in the Gospels are the very words of God. Um, Andy? So are the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, and so are the words attributed to God everywhere they're found in the Old and New Testament, and ultimately so are all the words in the entire Bible as they're literally inspired by God, you know, God-breathed. But we can only trust the Gospels, and maybe not even all of those, but one of those, because I don't know. I literally have no logical way of making this work. Quote, the words of Jesus inform our conscience, they fuel our faith, and they direct and form our behavior. And if just the words of Jesus were elevated to the place where they should be, it would revolutionize the church, and perhaps revolutionize our culture and the world. And I agree. If we only used the words of Jesus, it would absolutely change the church. But unless God is that doddering fool, why did he not just give us the Gospels? What's the point of the rest of this, then? So as we wrap up, Andy has been very clear. Words of Jesus, Jesus follower, words of Jesus, right? He's used scripture out of context. He's used scripture fragments in order to prove a point. And he says that the words of Jesus are not elevated where they should be. So I was curious. What are the commands that Jesus personally 
Red Letter gave while on earth. I found a good list, I think. Abide in him. Repent. Follow him. Rejoice when persecuted. Let your light shine. Be reconciled to your brother. Don't lust. Keep your word. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Be perfect. Don't boast in offerings or prayers. Lay up heavenly treasures. Judge not. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Choose the narrow path. Beware of false prophets. Pray for those that proclaim the truth. Be wise. Fear not. Hear the words of God. Exchange your yoke with God's. Honor your parents. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Despise not the little ones. Practice church discipline. Don't be covetous. Honor your marriage. Forgive those who offend you. Be a servant. Ask in faith. Bring in the poor. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Watch and wait for the return of Jesus. Practice communion. Be born again. Keep my commandments. Watch and pray. Feed my sheep. Baptize my disciples. Make disciples. Now, I'm sure some of these apply less than others, and I probably missed some, but notice that it's a lot of love, a lot of forgiveness, a little bit of don't do this or that, and some don't judge. This is why Andy wants you to be a Jesus follower rather than a Christian. This is why he has to try to denigrate theologians and theology, why he changes the definition of sin, why he calls into question the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible. See, Andy has his agenda, and following the words of Jesus, and I guarantee he's selective even in that, appears easier and is definitely not as strict appearing as when you take the Bible as a whole in context as written, as intended, and as supernaturally protected. Andy is a 65-year-old man who lives under the shadow of his dad, who likely had a strict upbringing, who appears to be somewhat angry at theologians, who appears to be a social liberal, who appears to have a bitter taste in his mouth regarding the Bible, who chooses to follow man-made science rather than God-given accounts, and who absolutely believes that being part of the LGBTQQIA2 plus community should not preclude you from salvation or heaven, and ultimately believes that everyone will go to heaven. Andy speaks of Jesus a lot. A lot. And Andy knows or believes nothing about him. Judging by his fruit and judging by his view of the Bible and who he thinks Jesus is, judging by the fact that in eight weeks of preaching, we could probably read through all of the scriptures that were read in under 10 minutes, likely in under five minutes, and judging by the fact that the gospel was never proclaimed, nor was Jesus proclaimed to be our Savior, I'd argue that Andy Stanley is not saved. And this blind guide is leading his blind congregants and probably 50 to 70,000 people total, straight to hell with him. And he's not the only one. There are so many wolves masquerading as shepherds in this country and around this world. And I want to feel sorry for the congregation, but they have the truth in their hands or on their phones somewhere. We're at a point in history where we have more tools at our disposal than at any other time in history. People literally have no excuse. The only ignorance of the law, as it were, is self-imposed ignorance. Paul Washer said, quote, False teachers are God's judgment on people who don't want God, but in the name of religion, plan on getting everything their carnal hearts desires. That's why a Joel Osteen, and I'll insert Andy Stanley, is raised up. Those people who sit under him are not victims of him. He is the judgment of God upon them because they want exactly what he wants, and it's not God. Hopefully, 
This long series, capped off by this extra long segment, has been beneficial. As I stated at the beginning, my goal is to is not to mock and tear down Andy Stanley. I mean, that just comes naturally. I would love to see Andy step back, hang up his collar, repent for his blasphemous and heretical teaching, repent to his congregation, and encourage them to find a solid biblical pastor while he also finds a solid biblical pastor to learn under. But more importantly, I hope that I've helped you open your eyes and ears just a little wider to look for signs that you're sitting under or listening to or reading a potential wolf and to get out of there, to seek out those who truly love God, love Jesus, and love his words, all of his words as found in the entirety of the Bible. Satan is crafty. Satan would much rather you sit under the teaching of a man that appears to be a Christian but neglects the gospel, tears down the Bible, and teaches a false Christ rather than worship him at the local satanic temple. He would much rather you flounder, your family falls apart, your kids rebel because you're being taught moralistic mumbo-jumbo than you live life as a God-hating atheist. Well, with that, I guess it's time to let Andy go. Just, Just run on, Andy. Go on. And we need to run as well. I thank you for hanging with me through this segment and all of them. And I promise no more Andy for a long, long time. Neither of us uh, have hearts or minds that are that strong. Let's all go take naps now. Good night. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. When last we met, I started my goal update with, quote, Hold the line. I think that's the name of the game for the next few weeks. Funny story, that line ripped through my hands like me trying to play tug-of-war against a muscle car. Good news, no literal rope burns on my hands. Bad news, no literal progress or maintenance on my goals. You know, I considered so many ways to just make this go away, to just forget to weigh myself, to just stop reporting my goals. But what good will that do for me? None. That's what good it'll do me. And uh, knowing that I have family that for some reason listens to my pod rambling, they're going to ask, or, well, maybe ask what's going on. Maybe not. I don't know. Let's not take that chance. Just might as well face the music, right? And the music I'm facing is apparently the baby elephant walk. So the last update I did was data from July 31st, if I remember correctly. Since then, I had a week-long trip to see the parents, my aunt, and my friends that I've had since I was a kid, so, you know, a billion years ago. I actually didn't go crazy eating over that time, at least by measure of how many meals I ate, or really even how much I snacked, but there were snacks, and there was generally at least one calorie-rich meal per day. And to be honest, in August, I could feel myself getting fatter, but the motivation just isn't there. No need to go into details, but stress eating is a thing. I I just, I really believe this. Uh, And it's a thing I excel at. The stressors are nothing unusual. I mean, big things going on at work, a portion of which I'm responsible for. Any parent can tell you that you go through periods of heightened stress with kids. You know, it's just normal stuff. But I'm wondering, uh, this is serious, I'm wondering if there's a tie between stress and hunger, not necessarily calorie burn, but just hunger. Because 
through August, I have just been like super hungry. For instance, I keep a box of granola type bars at work. I generally eat one in the morning. It's 160 calories. For the first half of the year, I would eat that and then nothing again until dinner. And then I'd eat a solid dinner. And I had absolutely no problem with it. A little hungry during the day, hungry by the time I hit dinner, but really no problem. For the last month or so, by the time it gets to about lunchtime, I'm hungry to the point that I'm feeling not well. So I'll eat a second bar. Now, that's not a big deal, but why? Now, I'm not expending any more calories than I was before. No idea. Anyway, bottom line is that for whatever my reasons or excuses are, I'm up some from the last update. So I'm sitting at 196.6 pounds as of last weigh-in. From an overall standpoint, that's up about 14-ish pounds from my lowest, but it's still also down about 18 pounds from where I started. So there's still good mixed with the bad. Also good mixed with the bad in the last month with vacation, with extra hunger, apparently, with no tracking. From August 1st to August 29th, I only gained 2.8 pounds. That's four weeks, mathematically eating about 2,450 calories extra per week or 350 calories extra per day. So for the damage I've done, I'm actually eating close to a maintaining level of calories. Okay, so here's the thing. I need to reset my goals for weight loss. Now, I'll do that over the next week, report back on the next update. I need to set a goal for the rest of the year to come in at a respectable number, which, knowing what I can do, is still well within the realm of possibility. Okay, enough of my weight battle, of which I'm losing currently, but let me say this. A shout out to my sister and my youngest niece specifically. They both lost a solid amount of weight through diet and exercise over the last number of months. Just doing the basic stuff, watching what they eat, changing a little bit of the diet, and exercise. It's really kind of how I do it, except for changing the diet part. It's calories and exercise. Anyway, I could go into it more. That's their journey, not my place to talk about it. But good work, ladies. Keep it up. I'll get back on track with you soon. Okay, moving on. Let's look at reading. I'm starting to get this back on track also. Here's the problem I had. I selected a book that I thought would be interesting. Wow, was I wrong. So it just bogged me down. I I just didn't want to read it. Now, I wish I was one of those people who could just close the book halfway through and say, eh, I'm done with this one. But I think my head would explode. So from the last update to this one, I've read 115 pages. Okay. Now, about one and a half weeks of that was vacation time, which there's never any time to read when we all get together. It's pretty much just go, go, go the entire time, which is fine. Okay. That's, I'm not complaining. That's a good thing. Overall, I'm up to 4,838 pages read so far this year and 21 books finished. I'm about 550 pages away from my next goal of topping the number of pages I read in 2019. Now, the book I powered my way through and finished is entitled Carl Barth. It's a part of a series from the early 1970s named The Makers of the Modern Theological Mind. (laughs) I know, I know. I could barely contain my excitement too. But seriously, I I know that a lot of theologians, R.C. Sproul being one of the main ones, speaks a lot about the theology of Karl Barth. So I thought it would be interesting to read a biography about who this guy was. Wow, was that not what this book was at all. This was a biography on Barth's theology. 
So here's how I break it down. The first half of the book, I understood about 5% of what I read. And then there were a few chapters that actually interested me that I understood most of. Then the last 30% was just I bleed boring. So Bar's theology was pretty wonky. I'd have to say that I don't agree with most of what I read, although generally I understand what he was doing. His theology basically said that Jesus is the center of everything. And although a lot of pastors, theologians, myself, and Christians in general would agree with that statement, I mean, we're talking everything. It's, it's a theology called Christocentric theology. But again, way beyond what most theologians today would consider to be Christocentric and way beyond, I think, what most theologians today would agree the Bible actually supports— and this is why it was so hard to follow. Just everything, every concept, every aspect, every point in theology was pulled back and made to be Christ. It was really odd the way he did it. And as I said, I don't think that it can be supported biblically. For instance, one thing that I understood, the doctrine of election. Now, there are two main schools of thought on this, uh, one being Calvinism, saying that God chose who would be saved before creation, before the beginning of time, as a completely sovereign act, a monergistic salvation, where man did nothing to contribute to his salvation, that's the interpretation I happen to believe the Bible supports. Now, the other viewpoint, which is probably more prevalent today, is Arminianism, which states that God looked down through the tunnel of time, saw who made the choice to be saved, so then God came back before creation and chose them since they chose him. This is what's called a synergistic salvation model, where God does not, or cannot, or will not act sovereignly, leaving the human to have the final sovereign choice, regardless of what God may or may not want. Now, I don't find any compelling evidence in the Bible for this, personally. Now, Barth, on the other hand, had a third view. He had the view that the only elect that the Bible was talking about, the only elect in all of history, was Christ. That God elected Christ to be the Savior, and therefore all of mankind is elect through Christ. Well, that's not biblical. I mean, there's literally no way to support that view. I just don't understand how he got there, except for the fact that he set his mind that everything must be Christocentric to the extreme. But this leads to a theology in which everyone is saved and will get to heaven eventually, since we're all elect through Christ, who is the elect one of God. It's not biblical, right? His theology as a whole was just like this. <sighs> this was a painful book to get through. And I have a number of these books in this series about different people, and now I'm scared to read any of them. Okay, moving on. Devotions. That's the only thing that I kept up with fairly well, to be honest. And this time, I made a point, I think for the first time while being on a vacation, to read my devotions every morning. So that's still actually going well and actually is going more well than it has in the past. So, so far we've made it through the Ten Commandments and now we're moving along through the second half of Exodus. Okay, finally, Bible reading. So my idea of walking slowly through the Bible, reading the cross-references, the alternate de definitions, as well as using the Greek and the Hebrew lexicons to understand more fully uh, certain definitions of various words and phrases, okay, this just isn't going to work, at least not by itself, not on its own. It'll take me about a million zillion years to get through the Bible doing it that way. So I modified my approach. 
I'm going to use the Bible chronologically in a year reading plan. That's going to be my base, but I'm not going to go at that pace. All right. It'll be slower to some degree, and I'm not sure to what degree, but it will be slower. So what I'm doing, what I have been doing for the last few weeks is I'll read a few chapters in order to get some of the bulk reading in, and then I'll take some general notes, of course, as I go. Then I'll do some in-depth study of what's turning out to be like three to five verses at a time, really digging in like my original plan was. Now, even though at this point, the, with the vacation, et cetera, et cetera, where I didn't have time to really get this done more than a couple times, even with visitors and training stuff going on at work, which is where I normally try to do this, I'm sitting at 76.7% of my goal. Now, that's not terrible for what's been going on. So I'll take it, right? Now, I thought it might be interesting to use this format to give you some of the thoughts and questions I've had as I've been reading and studying and digging. Now, maybe you've thought some of these, maybe not, but I'll try this and we'll see how it goes. Maybe you'll find it interesting. Here we go. So on day one, God created light. Now, notice that God called the light good, but not the darkness. The easy answer is that, well, sin is associated with darkness, so it's not really good, right? It's but, but the reality is that darkness is actually good for some things, just like the light is. It, it has a purpose. My thought is that the darkness was the default, not necessarily good or bad at this point. It just was. And light, being the opposite of the default, was good, a good addition. On day three, God gathered the waters in one place, revealing dry land. When you look at the Hebrew for be gathered together, that phrase, it's the Hebrew word kavah. It can also be translated as to wait, or to look eagerly for, or to lie in wait for. Well, what did the waters lie in wait for? Maybe to be filled with fish by God on day five? That's possible. I was thinking that it was lying in wait to cleanse the earth at the time of Noah's flood. Now, this section is also cross-referenced to Psalm 33, 7, which says that he, God, lays up the deep in storehouses. Well, just recently, a study was released, I saw an article on it, that said we had more water under the crust of the earth than all of our oceans combined. Now, it's water that's stored in a mineral called ringwoodite, and from what I can understand, put very simplistically, this mineral, due to what it is, the pressures and the temperatures of where it is, acts like a giant sponge, and it's storing up a massive amount of water underground in the storehouses. Next, in the story of Noah, we always speak of Noah and his family, and the fact that his father Lamech died right before the flood, but Lamech had other sons and daughters, meaning that Noah had brothers and sisters who, I think we could safely assume, lived in the same area as their brother Noah, who would have seen what he was doing and likely talked with him, with Noah likely begging them to follow God. But they, they would have been part of the people of the earth whose intents of their hearts was only evil continually. That just kind of struck me as a personal aspect of Noah's story that I had just never thought of. Next, we have Psalm 104, 26 to 27. It speaks of Leviathan, which is a massively large sea creature, uh, but it talks about it as nothing but a fun pet for God. It was created to play in the ocean, and it waits upon God to feed it. I mean, this is something that when you look at the description, going back to Job 40, look at Behemoth. Behemoth is said to have bones as strong as pieces of brass or bars of iron. And if we're being genuine, actually looking at the 
way that Behemoth is described, Behemoth is clearly describing a sauropod dinosaur, right? Like a brontosaurus, that's that sort of thing. But then we go to Job 41, Leviathan is described as a steaming iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. Well, how big was this thing? And this was simply a pet of God's, according to Psalms. Next, we all know the story of Noah getting drunk after getting off the ark, right? And I guess I've always just kind of associated this with an outlet of massive stress from the last year on the ark, because the the story of getting off the ark and then and then the sacrifice and then Noah getting drunk, they're just kind of all right there in the same section. But in actuality, Noah had to plant and grow a vineyard. He had to harvest the grapes. He had to make the juice, and then he had to let it ferment into wine and then drink it. How long after the flood did this actually happen? Was it a year? Was it two years? I mean, it had to be a fairly substantial period of time, right? Not really a huge deal, but it wasn't just right after, and that kind of struck me as something I hadn't thought of before. And then lastly, in the book of Job, we know that Satan apparently came in and presented himself before God twice. But Job 2.7 is the last time we hear about Satan at all in the book of Job. So Satan requested that God allow him to take everything from Job, which God allowed, but wouldn't let him touch Job himself, right? And then Satan came back the second time. That's where we get to Job 2.7. And he said that, oh, yeah, well, you can take everything, and that didn't work. But if you took his health, well, that would cause Job to curse God. So God allowed Satan to afflict his health, but not to kill him. And then we never hear from Satan again in this book. So was that Satan admitting defeat and just slinking away at this point? I don't know. Well, anyway, those are some of the thoughts I've thought and and questions I've questioned. There are others as well. I've got a number of different things that I've written down, but those are kind of the bigger ones. And I'll stop there, mainly because this update is getting really long at this point. So I need to close this thing out. Future updates, of course, won't be this long. It's been a while. So we had some catching up to do. But that'll do it for today. Okay, bye.